there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. Advanced medicine is officially underway. Dr. Bittar, welcome, my friend. I missed you in Chicago, of course, over the weekend, but uh, hopefully we can get you at the Trinity Conference in uh, in the spring in L.A. It would be great to uh, have all of those those folks who appreciate you on the show see you in person. It's been a while. Well, I would love to be there. That's one place that I have never lectured at before, and uh, so... It would be nice to be there, actually. I'd love to do that. Yeah. So I, I think no matter what anybody says about you, I'm going to make sure they invite you. <laughs> you know how that Perfect. goes. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm uh, looking forward to it, Robert. Excellent. You know, it's almost like it reminds me of that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in, in college or high school when you crash a party. Yeah. That, I don't know why that thought just crossed my mind. We could just like, I could just crash it like a party and show up. <laughs> well, yeah, why not? Actually, you know, you were there, I'd get you on stage with me anyway. So it'd be, it'd be fun regardless, but yeah, we'll see what we can do about that. But our commitment to health freedom and, and the people that listen to us around the world, I think they understand the, the importance from a deep spiritual level, as well as all the way out to the physical reality that the freedom to, you know, create your own path or, you know, basically co-create your own path in life. And, and that includes, the creation of disease, which often helps us to learn the things we didn't know we wanted or needed to learn. And then, of course, the path out of the mess that we were participant in creating. And I think, you know, that that concept of, of uh, self-responsibility is not a bad one, although a lot of people don't like the R word. I do because it really opened me up to the possibilities that the experts said, "Nah, that can't happen. You can't grow out of that. You can't heal from that. And a lot of people are dealing with those situations. Well, I'm going to be a little bit. Uh, politically incorrect. Oh no! And, oh, don't and do it. Not not me, right? Not you yes. and me. We, yeah. we're, we're always politically correct. No, right. Uh, this is this is actually something important. You, you said you like the R word, the personal responsibility. Responsibility, yeah, because I, I I know what it, how it, how it manifested different from when I felt like I was a victim of everything that that happened, you know, to me, so to speak, instead of what I was participating in, even unknowingly. Right. Right. And. So I'm going to disagree with you. I don't like that word responsibility. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I, I completely 100% agree with you that that is absolutely a necessity. There's no negotiation on it. You have to take personal responsibility to get better. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean necessarily that I like it, you know, because now I'm holding myself <laughs> accountable and responsible, yeah. which is often a hard thing for people to do. And I think that's probably where we end up having that human factor of self-sabotage. Mm. So I don't – but if you – I, I think it's crucial. I think it's necessary. And I think that there's no other way of doing it. So I am a big, big sticker. As you know, you know, I drive myself. I, I drive those that are around me mm-hmm. with that responsibility. Um, oh, yeah. And I'm not saying, flat. Dr. Batar, that I've ever com- not complained about it. Believe me, I have. I mean, it's like, oh, man, I got to do that. Right. But at the same time, you know, if I weigh the two scenarios out, one where I didn't know that I had the opportunity to heal myself or work with others that would empower me to heal myself versus just remaining a victim and saying, well, it's not my responsibility. The doctor will take care of me. Of course, even if there are days when I go, gosh, you know, I just can't somebody else do this, right? At the same time, I've been there long enough to go, yeah, I'll toy with the thought for a moment, but it's fleeting. I'll get over it and then I'll get on with my responsibility. 
Exactly. That's that's exactly my point. I just wanted to make sure that I distinguish so those that are listening to us don't think that we're both mutants because I'm not a mutant. <laughs> I don't like the responsibility. I just know that it's essential to get healthy and it's actually essential in all aspects of life, whether you're talking about it from an education standpoint, a business standpoint, a spiritual educational standpoint, you know, mm-hmm. your children, how you, you raise them, their outcome. It's all your own personal responsibility. And so I think that for people that are listening to us, Robert, it's an important message that when you and I talk about it, you know, people have said to me, at least, you know, you guys make it sound easy. I remember mm. uh, about 15 years ago, a patient of mine said, Dr. Terry, you always preach about exercise. You know, it's easy for a person like you. You're one of the beautiful people. And I said, what? What, what, what was that? <laughs> Wait a and second. They said, well, were were they looking at you? <laughs> no, exactly. That's my, that was my question. But they were talking about when they said the beautiful people, I, said, yeah. I asked them, I said, what are you talking about? What, what does that mean? They said, you know, the people that are you know, fit and good looking. And this is, it's easy for you guys to go to the gym, but for people like us, you know, we don't like the, and I'm like, what do you mean? People like beautiful people, people like, what are you talking about? And so in, in this individual's mind, he had contoured, uh, conjured up this image of people that were fit uh, as being the beautiful people. And mm-hmm. it was easy for them because they liked it. And I told him, I said, you meet me at the gym. Okay. And he <laughs> actually did Felix. He met me at the gym mm-hmm. and, and I, I wanted him to see the misery on my face. I said, I hate working out. I absolutely detest it. Now, I love the feeling afterwards. Post-workout feeling is like it's like a drug. You get addicted to it. But the actual working out, I said, you just come and watch. And he did. It was a yeah. 35, 40-minute workout, very intense, very fast, mm-hmm. in a lot of pain. And he told me, he said, you... He goes, you weren't kidding. He goes, you look like you're in a lot of pain. I said, I am in a lot of pain. That's why I hate it. <laughs> so it was important for, I think it's important for us. And mm-hmm. it was important for me then to realize that people that see you and I and mm-hmm. doing our thing and our, us preaching about it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, actually 25 hours a day, eight days a week. Yeah. They think that this is, you know, it's easy for us. It's not easy for anyone, but this is part of the human state. Mm-hmm. We have to overcome our own resistance and move into that resistance and do what's necessary. And that means taking personal responsibility. So even for the rest of the world, whoever's listening, it may be easy for Robert and he likes that. I don't necessarily <laughs> like it, but I know it's essential yeah. to be better, to get better, and to stay better. To stay well, I, I remember you saying this, and you've said it often, once difficult, now easy. And, you know, that is the, the – and, and the thing is you can float in and out of that too, right? Because it's not a permanent now easy because there's any point in time we have the freedom to go, you know what, nah enough of that easy stuff. I'm going to, I'm going to back off for a while. And then of course, it's a little bit difficult to get back into it, but I do find that if you've done it once, it it is marginally at least easier to get back to it because you have a pathway. There's a pattern emerge. There's body memory, things like that. And you know, to your advantage, but yeah, the hardest thing is the first time if somebody looks at you and says, I just couldn't do that. Maybe like this person who then went with you and maybe was encouraged that, you know what? It's not that he's like, you know, got superpowers, but maybe the will was strong enough to overcome that i don't want to do this yeah exactly now here's something talking about will you're you're like uh this is per- perfect uh volleying back and forth because you're bringing up certain key points that mm-hmm. are actually i was just writing a chapter in the conflict book mm-hmm. so these are points that are coming up there was an experiment done years ago um and i can't remember the, the name of the researcher's first name was paul something um but he actually wrote another type of book similar to maxwell maltz's book on psycho cybernetics uh, he actually wrote a book had a similar title but it was before maxwell maltz's book uh became popular he's a british researcher and in that book he talked about willpower and how we associate willpower with being the most 
powerful aspect of self-development and self-improvement. But in actuality, he found that willpower always will be defeated and usually easily defeated when it's pitted against imagination. Mm. So even though your willpower is not to eat the cake, your imagination overrides that urge not to (laughs) eat the cake because it imagines that how that delicious chocolate melts in your mouth and blah, blah, blah. So one of the techniques that he talked about, which I'm actually going to elaborate on, is how you use imagination to help enhance your willpower. And so this is the uh, four-step process that uh, I – you probably remember this, Robert. When we were in um, San Diego two years ago at that uh, – The best uh, answer for cancer, cancer. yeah. Yeah, as you were sitting there, remember when they were filming me and I I went through my step process, my Mm -hmm. program – of uh, how to accomplish anything. Do you remember that? The, the, the seven steps? and I don't remember and, all, uh, of, all that sequence, but I know that you are. it's very exciting when you bring up this issue because that's been my point for many years about willpower because people, I think, overemphasize it, and it can easily be defeated, like you said, with imagination. But this exact same thing that you're doing is that you can enhance willpower with imagination too, or you could sabotage it. Either way, the power to what? Imagine, co-create, all of that is yours, and using imagination is one of the most powerful ways to overcome those limitations or patterns in the past from the past. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's actually a four-step sequence, and I've narrowed it down to four. I had seven steps, and seven steps is actually there's a longer version too. But again, making things as simple, stupid is, is I think, a key mm-hmm. uh, goal that at least I have so that more people can actually start to use it. Uh, and, and sometimes having the knowledge is one thing, but to act upon that knowledge is more difficult. So to keep it simpler makes it more actionable. Um, but I'm not going to go over that right now because um, okay. for those people that come to our webinar that's on October 4th, I will. If somebody asks me, I'll I'll uh, give them the four steps. It's okay. going to be part of the book, so I don't want to give it out. I don't like to put out things too early mm-hmm. uh, as far as specific things like that because once I've published it, then nobody can say that it was theirs. And so right. that's my ego coming into the picture. But anyway, I will mm-hmm. I will share that with anybody who comes to the webinar on October 4th. Excellent. But, um, but it's it's really really important. I think that we as we take that responsibility to make sure we allow people to understand. Hey, it's not easy. Which you know, I think we just did today yeah. for the mm-hmm. probably probably the first time. But that component that you said once difficult now easy. That mm-hmm. you said the second time it's easier. I'll tell you, the second time may not be easy. Even the third time may not be easier. But you will find that if you just do it within that old old adage 21 days to form a habit i say 28 days just to give that 7 days extra buffer mm-hmm. but you do something every day for 28 days i guarantee you that on the 29th day when you do it you will and you think back you accurately think back to when it's when you started you will realize it was far far easier so it may not be this a second or third time but once difficult, now easy, it's that the body gets used to it. The body starts to expect it. It, it, it. You've overcome the natural resistance not to do something because you've formed that habit. It's no different than brushing your teeth or getting up and you know, whatever habits that you have. If you have a habit of not brushing your teeth, then that's a bad thing, and you're going to you know, miss your teeth later on. But my point is that it's the habit that you get into in that habitual, mm-hmm. uh, ritualistic action um, becomes almost automatic. In martial arts, for example, we learn certain movements and we have to repeat them over and over again. And sometimes it becomes pretty monotonous and you know, you're thinking, why do I have to keep on doing this? I'd like to learn the next move. The reason hmm. is because we're developing muscle memory. Yes. So you don't have to think about it. You don't have to cognitively think about it. It's all subconscious, just like your heart's beating. And right. so this is what we're talking about, developing that subconscious automation. Yeah, your, your, your mind 
And the imagination is instantaneous in many ways. It's, you know, it moves at the speed of light or beyond the speed of light, okay? But the body does not, if it did, it'd, it'd be ripped apart, right? So there are laws that apply here that make you feel like you're moving through molasses to get there. But well, the creator set it up this way for a reason. You want to fight it, that's your deal. But I, I try to work with it eventually because if you keep pushing and pushing, beating your head against that same brick wall, it's going to bleed just as much the first time as the 10th until you're out of blood. Listen, we got more advanced medicine to come right after this break. The Robert Scott Bell Show. In the health world through the power of radio. It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. All the links are up in the show notes. Thanks to Superdon. RobertScottBell.com. Take you to advancedmedicine.com. You can learn more about Dr. Batar also at drbatar.com. Uh, Dr. Batar, becoming a physician, as you have a DOMD, you go through certain things. There's, I would call them hazing rituals. Go through residency. There's an article here about residency burnout. Physicians, nearly half are reporting burnout. I'm, I'm surprised it's only half. Honestly, I have had friends that have been through it. I kind of know what they go through. I'm thinking, what is the advantage of going through it this way? Is it about breaking down the barriers uh, of the mind so you no longer question what you're being told? Or is there there's something else there that, that sleep deprivation and all the things that happen during residency uh, are a benefit to doctors later in their career? You know, Robert, it's interesting you said that. Um, I honestly think now, compared to then, uh, I actually believe that it's part and parcel of the strategy that was implemented when, or probably before the flexion report came out and before the entire medical educational process uh, was turned upside down and when homeopathy and other methods that were non pharmaceutical based were um you know ridiculed and start to be pushed down the the alternative route as opposed to being the primary uh, route the primary modality mm-hmm. i think it's part and parcel of that whole strategy because if you can take a group of people single them out put them under um undue stress have them survive it you know let them weed their own process out but you you have them the, the ones that survive it are now elevated in a position of authority, elevation from a societal level, you know, put on a pedestal mm-hmm. and basically told that their poop doesn't stink, yeah. then you can actually now um, make them feel that they're special and then give them the um, give them the, the power to wield certain tools. So it's almost like taking prison guards mm-hmm. and and elevating them or take or taking the taking the certain prisoners and elevating them by giving them some authority. And so now they feel that they have authority over the rest of the people. And anybody that doesn't cater to them, it's probably a bad analogy. I know, I know well, no, you, you, well, the thing is, you've been through basic training, right, in the Army? Uh, I've, yeah, well, yes, absolutely. I've gone through all the, uh, you know, all the stuff. So yeah, so, and all that, so, yeah, so I think about that and I say, all right, there's a very strong purpose and reason for doing that, you know, to, to, to mold a soldier, you know, into existence, right? But if you apply the, as we have over the years, this allopathic thought form in medicine, attack, kill, destroy, which is, you know, the, the methods for the most part, 
then it makes sense why the Pentagon basically can go in and, and take over medical education, and, and it'd be almost the same thing. Like you said, you're going through this hazing ritual, brutal, and you survived it. Now you're part of the special elite club or group. So I think what you're saying is right. The, the question is, is there anything we can find that was a benefit? You know, from that. I mean, did they learn well, to do to become a doctor better because of it, or could they have done it without that hazing? Well, actually, so this is really interesting. You brought this analogy up with the military when you brought up the basic training because you know basic training is only six weeks. But I just when I mentioned the Q course to this or that, I, you you just actually solidified that thought process in my head because when you start looking at things like okay, you look at the Rangers, right, or, or the Special Forces, the, the Green Berets. Um, so I didn't go through Ranger school, but I did you know, that I was SF, I, but I didn't go through ranger school. But I'll tell you, ranger school and SF, at, at least from the Army, those are the two hardest courses to go through. I mean, you've got the Northern Warfare and Pathfinder and all these other military elite courses that they have. But ranger and, and SF, the Green Berets, okay, those the the Q course for the SF. Mm-hmm. Those are the two hardest. Now, they're, diff, diff, they're very different. They say the ranger school, it's a physical, uh, they, they basically physically, uh, F you. That's what the, you know, they, they basically physically abuse you to go through the process with the, with the Q course, with the SF, it's more a mental F you as to put it, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. a mental, uh, torture that you go through. So both of them are designed a little bit differently, um, because with the SF's mission is to go in and they basically live with the people and they indoctrinate the people. And so, you know, you live there for months, you may dress like them, you, you know, nobody, people can actually go by without even knowing that you are a part of the military, part of the U S armed forces, whereas with the Rangers, you know, you go in the mission, you come back out. It's 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 a uh, basically kind of like a seek and destroy type of thing. A seek and you know do a mission, come back out. Mm-hmm. So when you when you talked about the basic training aspect, it made my it, because basic training every soldier has to go through it. So it's nothing like you know basic training and then and then officer training. Every soldier, every any enlisted person and or officer has to go through one of those two programs. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wasn't thinking of that as being elite, but certainly. Um, with the with the higher courses, it is like to weed weed people out, though, is it not? It, that's exactly what it is. And and here's the thing: it also teaches resilience and teaches mm. responsibility to those people. And so, usually, you will never find somebody that's that's a ranger or SF or you know some other elite force that walks around strutting. You you yeah. rarely ever find that because oh hold on, anything, stand by. We got to strut into a, a break. I'm sorry. We'll be back with more advanced medicine. Fascinating discussion with Dr. Rasha Bittar on his army background as well as it relates to modern medicine. Stick with us. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Rocking the health world through the power of radio. It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. So, Dr. Batar, I'm fascinated by, again, that journey to becoming, you know, an excellent uh, artisan in any any field, right? You know, in homeopathy, you typically will study historically, and it's true of many fields, like an apprentice relationship to a master teacher, and you're put through the metal, so to speak. And, and, you know, it takes a long time to get there. And by the time you are ready, then they spit you out, kick you out, whatever. And now you're on your own and you apply the skills you've learned in your own unique way. Obviously, in the Army, they don't want necessarily you to stick your head up above anybody else. It's a little different there. 
but the concept of weeding out, making sure you can deal with it, the stress, whatever. You did mention at the last of the, the last segment, resilience and responsibility, two R words at the end of this thing. Is this maybe the, the, the positive side of this? I'm looking for something. Well, actually, I think that's what happens when you take the training in, into, a, into a certain realm. And that's why I was mentioning before we went to break that you, I've never seen anybody that's gone through any of these uh, types of training programs that go around strutting. Um, you know, usually they're, they're pretty reserved, pretty laid back. Uh, they're, they're humble, um, if at all, because they've, they've been humbled going through the process. Mm-hmm. Um, generally speaking, they have a greater appreciation, at least the people that I've come across, the ones that I have seen that have kind of, you know, been boisterous and stuff, very rare, mm-hmm. but they usually, um, you know, there's, they've just got some kind of a other flaw going on or they, sure. You know, but, the, but, they, but the whole idea of wearing you down is part of it. And I think that, you know, you're going to wear down resistance because as we know, the physician community by and large is when they come out of that, they, they, most of them don't ask these questions that we ask today or that I asked even early on. I didn't want to subject myself to because I knew I would not knew, I would not cooperate with those that tell me not to ask questions, not to, to look at those things, observe them and point them out. Absurdities. Of course, they don't want that. They want you to be able to basically do what you're told. This is your, this is your training. You're going to prescribe drugs. And, you know, again, I don't mean to limit it, but, uh, you know, it's an interesting analogy trying to assess this. Well, I think that the, if you look at pretty much all um, elite training programs, no matter what, whether it's military or whether it's educational or spiritual or whatever, you know, like look at what the, what type of hardships they put uh, priests through, you know, and, and the high incidence of all this, all these weird the aberrant um, behaviors, yeah, the manifest aberrant behavior, right? Yeah. Because they're pushing them into that extreme where they, they're trying to get to a certain level. In fact, this would be an interesting. Uh, chart to see that these three different elite pr- training programs, if you will, you've got the priesthood, mm-hmm. you've got medical education, and you've got the, um, the elite military services. Yeah. And you can see the uh, the strange behaviors, the, the what would you say, the aberrant... Uh, aberrant behaviors that can manifest. Yeah. Uh, of course, right. they so shouldn't just, be and wouldn't be tolerated in the military because they'd be, they'd be drummed out, I think, much quicker because of the, you know, the tight discipline and the observation. But they'd probably be castrated and hung out. You know, right, right. Um, actually, but, but my point is, if you look at the, all three are take, trying to take people, individuals, humans, mm-hmm. into extreme situations to develop some type of, to gain some type of a result. You know, there's got to okay. be some reason for that. And so you see a, a extreme on, on the priest side, you see another extreme on the opposite spectrum on the military side, and then you see this thing in the in the middle, in the medicine. You know, you, you don't see this uh, uh, aberrant type behavior necessarily in the medical side, but my mm-hmm. point is that you do see, you know, there's this interesting observational components, and it's, it's kind of hitting me all at one time, because mm-hmm. if you think about it, it, it falls right in the middle. You do have uh, the resilience aspect, and you do have an improvement in, in the thought process aspect, it's the endurance aspect. You know, if you if you have to go 36 hours without sleep and you do that throughout residency or every other day or every third day you take call and you're in this situation, your body forms that habit again because, you know, oh, I need so much sleep. I need eight hours, 10 hours of sleep. But, you know, suddenly, you know how much sleep I normally get. You know, not, yeah. I get more sleep now than I ever have. And, you know, sometimes I feel like uh, I'm on overload because I get so much sleep. But but compared to most people, you know, four hours or five hours of sleep is mm-hmm. is not enough sleep. But again, my body got used to it during my general surgery training. And actually in the military, during some of the um, courses, you know, that's one of the things they do. They deprive you of food and they deprive you of sleep. Yeah. <clears throat> so your body gets used to it, you know, for, for a couple of months during the during the training processes. So 
I but think then, it's a but conditioning. Then you are, yeah, it's conditioning. But of course, just like any conditioning and programming, it opens the mind for suggestion. And perhaps that's yes. the big reason why, because they need people to behave a certain way in order for what their goals are to be achieved. So I get that. Uh, you know, and that's perhaps why it's different in, in uh, you know, holistic medical circles. We would, we would say, you know, that, that's kind of absurd because that goes in the opposition of what we're trying to teach people in order for healing to occur. We don't want to, you know, c- keep you awake for, for days on end. Although no, the no, starvation but- part of it is good because fasting is something that is, is, is helpful to the body and mind. Yeah, but you got to remember, though, you know, whose agenda is being uh, exercised here. So mm-hmm. those that are trying to... Uh, for, for example, anytime you want to single out a group of people and, and have them do your bidding, you want to isolate them into a group, you want to elevate them, you want to have them go through something that forms that exclusivity, that bond within them and makes them feel that they're special. Um, a lot of times you don't have to necessarily do anything to make them feel special. You know, when you've jumped out of a plane at 36,000 feet and then, you know, oh, you, you, you at nighttime, you, you form that natural camaraderie or you feel that. You've got a notch on your belt that uh, most other people will never do. And so that naturally builds that exclusivity within mm-hmm. that group. And then you can start to, as you said, you've conditioned them. Now you can introduce certain ideas. So there were certain things I did in the military and certain things that friends of mine did in the military for God and country. Yeah. Now, after we we're out, we realized it wasn't for God and country. It was because we were being told to follow an agenda that some politician had come up with right. that had nothing to do with serving God and country. Yeah. So. But you condition people this way. And and I think, you know, we've gone into a very interesting topic here, Robert. I don't know how we ended up here, but this is... I like you know, it. It's, 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 it's not... A, we see this military, medicine, mm-hmm. um, you know, the priesthood. I would suspect that it's probably with every type of organization. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, even like look at the medical societies individually. You know, you've got uh, ICIM and uh, uh, ACAM and all these organizations which are promoting... Um, a, a non-conventional medical treatment regimen. Yes. And yet, even within them, they've got their own political aspects, and you start seeing how they kind right. of create these things within doctors, you know, if they're, you want yeah, to in, this, in, this in subcourse. The concept of indoctrination, of yeah, course, exactly. has, has its root there. Now, think about how long it takes to overcome that. We're 100 years out, Dr. Batar, from the Spanish influenza pandemic of, believe it or not, 1918. We're at 2018. Think about 100 years later. Now, what have we learned in 100 years? If you're in modern medicine and really, you know, been, been conditioned, you believe, man, all we are just one, one vaccine away from never letting that happen again versus someone who's outgrown that conditioning or programming. You say, my gosh, it wasn't a lack of antibodies at that point in time. It was about the destruction of the terrain during World War One, the exposure, including vaccinations, experimental vaccines that were given and the allopathic suppressive treatments like aspirin that were given that resulted in high mortality. When you cross-reference it to homeopaths and naturopaths at the time in their treatment, you saw a near 100% survival rate. And, and so, you know, bringing this training and this education or indoctrination into play a hundred years later, we're still struggling for modern medical doctors to see these realities that they're not seeing yet. Yeah. And I think this comes back down to, again, that conditioning and how uh, a group can be conditioned. And when I say a group, you know, you can be, it can be a group of 10 soldiers or it can be, uh, you know, six and a half million uh, billion people on the planet. They mm-hmm. can be conditioned. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's exactly what it comes down to. Um, I had a very interesting conversation when I was in Singapore with a, with a pretty educated and informed lady who was pro-vaccine. Um, she doesn't have any young children now, but she, you know, she said, oh, I understand that people, you know, say this, but, you know, you, you'll never convince me. And then we went and had a discussion. And 
at the end of it, she said, you've really opened my eyes. And she said, but I had no idea some of these things. And, and the reason she didn't have any of, these, any of these ideas is because the media doesn't talk about them. She she had no uh, understanding or awareness. I give the example of the you know hepatitis B, took her through that that little thing that I'd like to do that you've seen me do before on stage where I um, argue with doctors. I mean, the more the more medical education somebody has, the more the hepatitis B argument they can't argue with it because it's basic fundamental understanding of you know basically the heart pumps the blood through the body and then when you take it through the hepatitis b and the the insanity of how we give it and, and when we give it etc cetera, etc cetera, nobody can refute it you know like do we really expect our children to be drug hmm. IV drug users prostitutes or doctors or nurses by the time they're age 10 and of course the answer is no so why are we doing hepatitis b when that's the only population that it affects uh, and we know that the hepatitis B has to be given every 10 years. So that type of rationale, when you start taking a person through that and you start to educate them and make them aware, and you basically are deconditioning them yes, or you're deprogramming. actually mm-hmm. deprogramming them, right? Or, or you're actually allowing them an opportunity to deprogram themselves so they can discover the truth for themselves. I have found that when you allow a person and help a person to discover the truth themselves, this is something yes. my dad taught me a long time ago, they are far easier to convince and they're far easier for them to digest it and now to, to change or to evolve it's a very because good they point. came to the conclusion themselves yeah. as opposed to it being you know shoved down their throat. Well, yeah, you, you force somebody into a, a, a new state of consciousness. Is it really a new state of consciousness or is it something they'll discard the moment they're out of sight, right? You know, yeah. this, is the, this is the thing. And, and is there a way? And I think what we do here on this show, what I love to do is engage in, in intellectual discussion, but also, you know, we, we laugh a lot. We, we bring humor into it, point out absurdities. I don't it, laugh about anything. No, of course not you. I didn't mean you, but everybody okay, else. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, we just, and, and it makes so-called the medicine go down easier a little bit, right? The spoonful, proverbial spoonful of sugar. But the idea here is, of course, to, as I say, not convince anybody, but to, you know, perhaps put these things out there. And if something strikes a chord of truth that you sense it, then you'll be encouraged to go further, dig deeper. And maybe despite your own protestations, we'll go, you know, I have to admit that kind of made sense. I better dig it a little deeper, like this experience you just shared. Yeah, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, book, The Tipping Point, talks about how 10,000 hours of doing something is actually at the point where uh, things become, you know, you become extraordinary at that point yeah. once you've g- hit that 10,000 hours of doing something. Mm-hmm. And I have found that that probably, uh, while we were talking, it came to my mind that that's probably that once difficult, now easy mm-hmm. uh, concept. And of course, you don't have to do something 10,000 hours before it becomes easy. The point is to become really good at something, like extraordinary something. You need to have that 10,000 hours. Right. And, and so this whole concept that we've just talked about um, this conditioning aspect and 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 then the deconditioning and and, you know what is the motive behind it maybe that's why the 10,000 hours you know by putting a person through those types of hardships during the medical education program um, it it conditions them a certain way and so maybe we should strive to do 10,000 hours of certain things to really get good maybe that's what my new goal would be to make sure that I have 10,000 hours of documented time and in fact Robert this is an interesting point mm-hmm. for a couple of years you remember when I used to keep a daily ledger of how many push-ups and how many yes. steps and stuff I did yes okay well that, you know I know I hit that 10,000 hours because that was you know whatever it was for those three years well, we, the 10,000 hours you know I need to do it again I think we're, we're working on 10,000 hours here of advanced medicine by then we'll actually be really good at this yeah, yeah, we're we're we've, uh, <laughs> we're probably we're almost hitting a thousand hours now, right? Before. Yeah, no, we're cranking. All right, listen, we got to take a break. We'll be back and we'll be wrapping up advanced medicine with Dr. Rashid Bittar here on the Robert Scott Bell Show. Check it out; links are up, and uh, there's loads more to learn for all of us. 
Live around the world. The Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert Scott the Bell Robert Show. Scott Bell Show. Archives available at our uh, home and broadcast radio syndication, GCN, GCNlive.com. And then, of course, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, UK Health Radio, and, of course, YouTube, and AdvancedMedicine.com, DrBatar.com, and, which is where you, by the way, Advanced Medicine, where you're going to find out about the October 4th webinar that Dr. Batar is going to be running. If you're already a member of the IDFW, you are in. If not, you need the invitation code 1358. Go to AdvancedMedicine.com. It'll be hopefully pretty obvious how to do that. Yeah, it'll be pretty obvious. And if it's not, just look in the left-hand tab. Uh, tab off the dashboard and there there has uh there's a tab that says uh education mm-hmm. and uh just simply click on that and there's a tab there for uh advanced medicine it's under health education on the left hand side and you can just go down there and it'll it'll have a link there yeah and once you sign up you'll be getting email links so you'll be part of it now let's uh squeeze in one question of the day before we break here excuse me i'd like to ask you a few questions <laughs> All right, this is for Dr. Batar and me. Uh, hi, I was diagnosed with stage 4 breast cancer in uh, on my bones last year. Now, uh, Dr. Batar, this is coming from someone named Dr. Khan, K-H-A-N. Uh, and I don't know what kind of doctor, but this person says, I have been following alternative protocols as well as endocrine treatments from conventional medicine. So I, some kind of hormonal blocking. You'll have to kind of speculate there. Uh, symptoms on disease improved, but still not in complete remission. What do you think I should add to my protocol to improve my gut health, especially SIBO, small intestinal uh, bacterial overgrowth, which my alternative doctor diagnosed and gave me a few weeks treatment. But after stopping the treatment, it came back. Please help. So Dr. Khan is requesting some kind of assistance here. That's actually my mother's maiden name, K-H-A-N. That's interesting. Um, The only reason I brought that up is because yesterday was her anniversary when she passed away. And so... Kind of strange how yeah, I think there's a signal wild. there from, from the universe. She's not uh, s- sending a message from beyond, uh, is she, at this point? I don't know. It could be. But regardless, I mean, listen, I don't know what endocrine-disrupting treatments that the oncologists do. You know, you hear about these things. You, you might know more about them. Uh, but, uh, you know, concerns me, of course, if there's a small intestinal b- bacterial overgrowth, that you want to address that without destroying the patient. Yeah, I think that that's a very important point. Um, so the the gist of the question was that they wanted to know what else they can do. So basically, they obviously have uh, been pursuing a direction that is the correct direction. When you start talking about the endocrine um, system and doing certain types of um, treatments that were that were just mentioned, you know, they cause a lot of disruption. There's a lot of stuff that ends up happening from an endocrine standpoint uh, in cancer overall. And when we start to muck around with that, for example, putting people on steroids to reduce inflammation, that's what the thought process is. But then we suppress the immune system that's affecting the endocrine uh, system, obviously. Or, or, or and, the estrogen blockers, because they talk about estrogen oh, dominance, but they don't address why it happens. They just suppress exactly. it after the fact. And, you know, that's, these, absolutely. Yeah. And, and actually the, the, the problem is that a lot of these drugs are, are xenoestrogenic anyway. So you've right. got, you know, not only the natural exposures of things that we're taking, like exposed to plastics and such, where we get the xenoestrogens, but we've got the phytoestrogens and the soy. Mm-hmm. And so then you've got these pharmaceutical uh, medications that are also have a very high estrogenic effect. So you've got an estrogen dominance going on there. And, 
So yeah. anyway, th- there's, a, there's a lot of different uh, endocrine manipulations that are attempted in all individuals, not just cancer patients. But then we start to, generally speaking, when I say we, the medical community generally starts to muck everything up mm-hmm. by getting into those types of components. If anything, we should support the endocrine system with natural yes. supportive measures and um, to, to help the body deal with the stress. But right. we have to be very conscientious and careful and be the, very judicious at making sure we don't violate the negative inventory feedback. Yeah, and these drug interventions can disrupt the gut ecology. And that's where we can Without see SIBO. The terrain is altered. Now, I, I always recommend the silver aloe protocol. It's not mutually exclusive. There are a lot of things that can be done. Uh, there are homeopathics as well. I think we talked before before Aaron. You said you have done some things for, for SIBO that are maybe formulations that people can access. I don't know. But, uh, you know, healing the gut, replenishing the microbiome is going to be important here. Yeah, actually, the the things that we've developed again, we don't even talk about it. Why? Because it, if it's yeah. if it's indicated, the headmap picks it up. So um, that's one reason. It's actually our I seven. So Doctor Khan yeah. should plug into the IDFW so that Doctor Khan can plug into the headmap and find out what's next. Exactly. Well, actually, somebody can go into a headmap without having to plug into IDFW, but IDFW mm. allows you to actually have access to certain things mm. um, that will that make the headmap that much more effective because it gives them access to the protocols but but you're absolutely right i think the the last thing that the question which was you know what can we do i think you just answered robert that's probably the best place to start there are other things that can obviously be done and you know what depends the other thing is just to tell them what they need to know because we're out of time (laughs) oh my goodness sorry well the power to heal is unequivocally each and every one of yours and ours beautiful the robert scott bell show 